Hello, this is Tony Blazer for the Motocross Vault presented by Blinzall. If you're in the market for some high-quality racing oil for your two-stroke or four, make sure you go to blinzall.com and use our discount code VAULT20 to save 20% at checkout. Thank you for all the support. This is Hannah. This is Bailey. Oh, oh wait, wait. <laughs> That's Butters. <laughs> this is Butters. Yeah. Welcome to the Motocross Vault. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Motocross Vault. My name is Tony Blazer, and what this video is going to cover is a look back at Honda's 1986 CR125. Now, the mid-80s, a lot of times you think of it as like the Honda decade. It seems like they dominated a lot of the mind share, certainly in the latter part of the decade. But Honda's, particularly in the 125 class early on, they were pretty hit or miss. Uh, they had come out with an awesome machine in 1973 and quickly let the competition just blow past them. Uh, Suzuki came out with the RMs in 76, and from there on out, the, the CR pretty much took a backseat to its rivals. In 83, they came out with a pretty decent machine. Not really, I would say, a dominant machine, but a good all-around bike. But it wasn't really until this year in 1986 that the CR125 really came into its own, and it more or less dominated motocross in the 125 class for the next decade. Uh, the CR125 in 86 is not that different than the 85, but they made a lot of little changes that really added up to a superior machine. And this is an important year for motocross in general because this is the first year for the production rule. Meaning that prior to 86, if you look at like a, a bike like Raw Machine was riding in 1985, it bore no resemblance to anything you could buy on the Sherman floor. Uh, the early, you know, Honda Works bikes were really exotic, handmade things. They had fuel pumps and electric power valves and uh, cartridge forks. All these things you couldn't buy on the, on the production machine. And some of the manufacturers, Yamaha in particular, complained that there was, this gave essentially Honda an unfair advantage. They had a, a bit larger budget. And in 86, the AMA brought the production rule into use. And what that meant is you had to, the, the race bikes, they could make some changes, but they had to be at least based initially on a on a off-the-shelf, you know, off the Sherman floor machine. So Honda really came out with some really good bikes in 86 across the board. The 125, 250, 500, even the, the 80 were excellent bikes. And I think a lot of the competition thought that the production, the move to the production rule would probably hurt Honda's standings because they wouldn't be able to run these exotic machines anymore. But uh, if anything, it helped because their their production bikes turned out to be by far the best anyway. So it was an interesting year for Honda in general. They really kicked butt on the track. Mickey Diamond won the 125 uh, national title on this bike. And you think about how how it was the guys were going to Honda at this time. Like, Mickey had been a privateer on Husqvarna's. He was never a threat, I don't think, to win anything. I don't, it certainly wasn't people thinking, oh, Mickey Diamond, he's the next superstar in the sport. He moves over to Honda. Immediately, he's national champion. Back-to-back -back national champion. So Honda in this era they certainly had an aura of success and uh, while the production machines particularly in the early 80s weren't always great in 86 man they hit it out of the park if you like this sort of thing make sure you check out some of the other stuff i've done on the channel i just did a review of the history of geico honda from its inception until its retirement unfortunately this last year i also just did a review of uh, jgr yamaha another team unfortunately we lost this year um, maybe i'll be doing some more in the future seems like people are enjoying these so i look through each one year by year and kind of look back at what they went through there's also all kinds of other bike reviews. If you'd rather just look at, you know, strictly motorcycle reviews, something like this. I have histories of the retrospectives of the, the CR80, the CR250, even off-road machines like the XR250, and even the Z50. So you find a little bit of something on my channel. If you'd like to support what I do, um, Motocross Vault merch is available. I, I will put a link in the description below. I just came out with a couple of all-new designs. I had some people actually ask for some European bikes. Um, I've always focused more on the Japanese stuff. I was always more a Japanese guy myself. I just came out with a new design based on a 1975 Boltaku Persang. So I had a couple guys kept asking me for that one, so I just did that. 
I have a version with uh, it in the back of a, a Dotson Little Hustler and also just by itself. And it also came out with a version of the Mighty Mako 490 as well. So you can find that on my uh, Teespring store if you'd like to check it out. So here, without further ado, is the story of the 1986 Honda CR125R. At the dawn of international motocross, it was the big booming thumpers that were stealing all the headlines. These massive machines were a handful, and only the bravest and most skilled riders could make the most of their brutish performance. Then in the 1960s, the lightweight two-stroke made its appearance, and the 250 class started to gain prominence within the sport. In the 70s, it was the high-revving 125's turn to shine, as America's youth was drawn to the inexpensive and easy-to-ride tiddlers. With the traditional European manufacturers content to build their higher-profit big bores, the Japanese upstarts cranked out 125's by the thousands. While the Japanese had been producing small-bore two-strokes in the late 60s, it was not until 1973 that they really got serious about the 125 class. The revolutionary Honda CR125M Elsinore made obsolete every other small-bore that had come before it and created an explosion of interest in the 8th-liter division. After the incredible initial success of the Elsinore, it was up to Suzuki to make the next big splash with their new Works Replica RMs. From 1975 through 1979, the yellow buzz bombs from Hamamatsu dominated small-bore racing with torquey motors and supple suspension. In 1980, it was Yamaha's turn to steal the title of best tiddler in the land, before once again surrendering it to Suzuki's incredible full-floater RM. After dominating small-bore racing in 81 and 82, Suzuki relinquished its title to the all-new CR125 for 1983. The CRs ran at the top would be short-lived, however, as in 1984, Kawasaki made their big move to the front with an all-new KX125. After a solid decade of mediocrity in the 125 division, Kawasaki finally unveiled an absolute monster of a motor, which dominated the standings in 1984 and 1985. Coming into 1986, three of the big four's 125s were licking their wounds after a two-year drubbing by Kawasaki. The 85 CR125 had been a solid bike, but it lacked the outright power to run with the KX. In 1985, Suzuki had still offered its renowned full-floater suspension, but like the Honda, it spent the year eating roost from the barking Kawasaki. Worst of all was the Yamaha YZ125, who MXA famously accused of not being able to outrun a Toro lawnmower. It looked like if anyone was going to take back the crown of the number one 125 in the land, they would need to find a way to bring a few more ponies to the corral in 1986. For Honda, the CR125R had only been a motor away from capturing the class victory in 1985. It offered the best handling, had solid suspension, and was easily the best-built machine. If only it had a little more power, it would have been impossible to beat. For 1986, Honda looked to refine that proven package with a list of incremental improvements all designed to unseat the reigning tiddler champ. The new machine retained the same basic engine design it had used in 1985, but Honda did make several small refinements to bump up its performance. It maintained the same bore and stroke and 124cc of displacement as 1985, but made it to a new single ring piston and revised porting. The exhaust pipe was all new and featured a revised version of Honda's automatic torque amplification chamber. The ATAC had been introduced in 1984 and consisted of a resonance chamber connected to the exhaust manifold. This resonance chamber would be opened and closed by a centrifugal ball governor based on engine RPM. The idea behind the ATAC was to alter the head pipe volume essentially tricking the motor into thinking it had a torque pipe at low RPM and then close it off, essentially mimicking a rev pipe at the higher RPM, basically giving you a wider power band. For 1986, Honda increased the resonance chamber size and also reshaped the exhaust pipe in order to boost low-end power. 
In addition to that, they added a quicker pull throttle, a new six-pedal reed valve intake, and a larger airbox, all designed to boost performance. On the track, the 86CR was a transform machine. Where the 85 had been soft down low and mellowed through the middle, the 86 barked off idle and blasted through the mid-range. It jumped from the first crack of throttle, revved fast, and pulled like no CR125 ever had before. The motor hit hard and easily lofted the front wheel out of turns and over obstacles. On top, the CR pulled well, but it slowly tapered off toward the rev limiter. It was basically a carbon copy of the meaty Kawasaki power bands that had dominated motocross the two years before. While Honda was giving their 125 a major power injection in 1986, the previous champ was making a major misstep. For 1986, Kawasaki unveiled their new works replica KX125 and screwed up their previously unbeatable engine package. The KX traded off its hard-hitting low-to-mid power for a hard-to-ride, high-revving screamer. The new works replica had none of the previous two years' torquey delivery and required the KX pilot to keep the motor pinned at all times. It was fast, but much harder to ride than the previous two years. In the yellow camp, things were looking even grimmer, as Suzuki introduced a complete turd for 1986. The all-new blue RM mill used an ATAC-style exhaust valve molded into the cylinder head and lacked anything resembling horsepower. It was gutless at all RPM levels and virtually useless as a racing motor. The all-new full floater was also a major step back in performance, leaving the RM as a back-of-the-pack contender in 1986. With Kawasaki and Suzuki out of the running, it came down to a surprising upstart contender to challenge Honda for the best mill of 1986. After several years of absolute dogs, Yamaha came out swinging in 1986 with a completely new YZ125. The new case read Yamaha did away with the old bike's listless delivery and replaced it with a punchy mid-range blast. There was very little power above or below its explosive mid-range, but when it went, it went right now. It was the hardest hitting motor in the class and offered the most burst of any 125 in 1986. In the final standings, the potent YZ put up a valiant fight, but it was no match for Honda's awesome combination of low-end response and meaty horsepower. The Honda offered the most power over the widest spread and combined that with the smoothest gearbox and a flawless clutch. It did not pull as hard on top as the Kawasaki or explode as violently as the YZ, but it never missed a shift and never fell off the pipe. For 1986, Honda went after Kawasaki and ended up beating them at their own game. In the suspension world, the real big news of 1986 was Shawa's remarkable all-new cartridge fork system. After over a decade of mediocre performance, the work style internals found on the 86CRs gave Big Red a huge suspension advantage. Unfortunately, however, for CR125 pilots, the 125 was not deemed worthy of the magic legs in 86. In a disappointing decision, the CR250 and CR500 got the good stuff, while the CR125 had to soldier on with Kayaba's older-style non-cartridge internals. Instead of the high-tech wave washers, the little CR had to make do with what Kayaba called a travel control valve damping system. The new TVC design used a poppet valve to control damping and was supposed to offer finer damping control than the previous damper rod designs. On the track, however, the new TVC forks were harsh and far less plush than the Shawa cartridge units. They worked decently well on small hits, but tended to hydraulic lock on slap-down landings and on large G-outs. They were raceable, but not in the same league as the units found on its bigger brothers. In the rear, the CR125 used its trademarked ProLink rear suspension design and mated that to a KYB remote reservoir shock. For 1986, Honda changed the rising rate of the linkage to offer a more progressive feel and bolted on a revised shock that offered 16 compression and 22 rebound settings. 
The new rear end was a decent performer overall, but many fast riders found it too soft out of the box. While it was plush on small bumps, it did tend to bottom out harshly on hard hits. Much like the forks, most riders actually preferred the smoother 1985 settings. While the CR125 had been somewhat down on power in 1984 and 85, the one area where it took a backseat to no one was in the handling department. The little CR was a scalpel on the track with incredibly sharp turning response and a very light feel. No line was too tight and no corner was too tricky for the red machine. For 1986, Honda limited its chassis changes to only the addition of a head stay to increase rigidity. As a result, the CR was still the same tight handling package it had been the year before. The flip side of this razor-sharp turning, however, was a bit of oscillation at speed. Head shake was a common occurrence on Hondas of this era, and the 86 CR was no exception. When coming down from speed in the rough, the CR could shake its head bad enough to yank your hands clear off the bars. While this could be sketchy if the rider was tired or caught unaware, this twitchiness was considered a pretty fair trade-off by most, considering the Honda's incredible turning performance. In the 1986 Handling Derby, it was the Honda that collected the most positive votes. While it could be a handful at speed, the majority of riders preferred the CR's tight manners to those of the others. In the details department, the Honda stood head and shoulders above the others. Its twin piston caliper front binder was both the strongest and the most progressive of any 125. Its rear drum was the best of the lot, but it did lack the all-out power available from Kawasaki's new rear disc. It had the best airbox and stock filter, as well as the easiest to service chassis. The bars, grips, plastic, and ergonomics were all top-notch and a step above the others. On top of being the fastest bike, the CR was also the most reliable. The motor and chassis were completely bulletproof in 86 and far superior to the Kawasaki and Suzuki, both of whom were known to have very costly reliability issues, including broken frames, seized cranks, and cracked rims. In 1986, Honda came out with its best 125 to date. Without the benefit of the shallow cartridge forks, it lacked some of the suspension finesse of its bigger brothers, but it made up for it with that romp and stompin' motor. In the 500 and 250 class, its mediocre suspension might have cost it the title, but in the 125s, motor was king. As with the Kawasaki in the previous two years, the motor of doom was more than enough to cover up its other sins. It ripped, it snarled, it diced, and it sliced. The Honda CR125R was a serious motocross weapon, and the best 125 of 1986. So there you have it. There's a look back at the 1986 CR125R, a machine that just really kicked butt that year. Uh, it did not get the cartridge forks that the 250 and 500 had, but it, it turns out it didn't really even need them. I mean, none of the suspension in the 125 class was great that year. They None of them were, the competitors were using cartridge suspension. And even though the Honda did not have the best setup there, uh, the motor was such an advantage in the 125 class, particularly at the time, much like the 250s now. Why does everybody want a YZ, want to ride a YZ 250F? It's not because it handles the best. It's because it has the most power. Any of the small bore classes, uh, you're always going to find there's such an advantage to having more power. Um, so the CR really had it this year. It had it in spades. And that basically is the reason it kicked everybody's butt. So uh, if you like this sort of thing, again, make sure you check out some of the other uh, videos I've done on the channel. If you could like, subscribe, share on social media, I would very much appreciate it. That helps people find the channel. The channel's been growing greatly in the last couple of months, and I really appreciate that. And a lot of that has to do with you guys out there sharing the stuff, liking it, commenting. That helps uh, YouTube kind of allow other people to find my stuff. So I really, really appreciate it, and I thank you very much for the support. So until we meet again, this is Tony Blazer for the Motocross Vault. Keep the rubber side down. Peace.